Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. Quality, cosy log cabins at affordable prices, timberliving.ie. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show. Uh, the only thing that any of the front pages agree on today is that the Grand Slam dream lives on and Conor Murray and Jack Conan on the front of uh, the Sunday Times and the Sunday Independent looking pleased with themselves. The Sunday Times lead with, in quote, Russian agent worked as an aide in the doll. Irish citizen faces deportation from Australia as security risk. She was previously heard by politicians and the Cork Space Centre. Who knew there was such a thing as the Cork Space Centre. We do not lack for ambition in Cork, I'll tell you that. The Sunday Independent uh, is leading with fraudster sister lodge money in DJ Carey account. Cash sent from an account now under Garda scrutiny. Uh, the Irish Mail on Sunday uh, is leading with misled TD's rage at Silent Donnelly. And this is a follow on from their story last week about um, drugs for mental illness, um, not, not free for people over 16. Uh, the Business Post government U-turns puts 80% of offshore wind projects at risk. So the government seems to have now said you can only do offshore wind in two uh, specific areas. Um, and a lot of people are saying, well, we have pumped money into plans and everything else and this scuppers it. Uh, the Irish Sunday Mirror is leading with the fact that um, punters can expect a fleecing this St. Patrick's Day with eye-watering prices for hotels and parade tickets. It might interest you to know that Dublin City Council, which was accused here of price gouging too, a family of four would have to fork out 1,014 to view the St. Patrick's Day parade from the Emerald Circle grandstand, according to that story. Uh, the Sun on Sunday uh, has Mary Coughlin, who has forgiven the man who broke into her house because she says, I know his life. Uh, the Sunday World has a story about so um, rivals of the late uh, Cornelius Price are apparently sending around mockingly uh, a video of him on his deathbed. And uh, again, it's the Sunday Telegraph, it's the English papers are leading with um, the protocol deal. So the Sunday Telegraph leading with Sunak snobs Johnson over new Brexit deal. So there's more enthusiasm and interest uh over there than there is here. Maybe we've been up the hill one time too many here. The Irish media are getting a bit jaded. Um, now, our panel today, Paul Hotsford is political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Kel Gallivan is a financial advisor and author of Mindful Money. Kate O'Connell is a pharmacist and a former Fine Gael TD. And Bridget Laffin is the Emeritus Professor at the Rob- Robert Schumann Centre for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute in Florence. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, Kate O'Connell, we will not name the person involved in the front page story on the Sunday Times, but just you picked this story and, and it's it's it seems like a, a colourful story on one level, but an important story, you think? Yeah, it is an important story. And I suppose for the public, I mean, the access that staff of politicians have is essentially equal to politicians in our parliament. So the swipes work on the doors going into buildings, um, into particular areas of the doll. So, and also, aides or assistants are employed by 
elected people but paid for by the state so there's an interesting sort of employment issue there as well so it's the duty of the TD or the senator to employ the people but the state pays pays the wages um, okay. So this person involved here worked for uh, m- more than one politician yes. in, in Ireland Yeah and they seem to have it appears got away with the fact that there was this history and in light of the the stuff when about you say this history. Well, this the history that's um, on the front of the Sunday Times today. The, yeah. the the connections. So you you'd have to question. You know who has access to our parliament when you're looking at the Chinese camera stories as well at the minute. You know is democracy being interfered with? How do these people get in? Who's vetting them? And then. You know, does it open a broader issue of, well, who's vetting the politicians? You know, you know, it's democracy. If someone has a, a, a criminal past, for example, is that OK? Are we OK with that? But we're not OK with an employee. I suppose so most of this stuff comes out, though, doesn't it? Courtesy of the media. Usually. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But in the case of staff, it's not interrogated. So usually in election campaigns, somebody's past or present is interrogated. But you very rarely see staff being interrogated Unless they're related to a politician, which is very common. Um, so that would often be, be a feature of the paper. But I do think in light of AI, in light of um, all of the, the cyber attacks that have happened, um, you know, the protection of our democracy and our state is very important. And clearly changes have to be made if this can happen and if there are potentially impacts um, on the, the, the governing of our state. So we are in a new world here. We are in a new world. I mean, yeah. The world has yeah. changed dramatically yeah. in, in recent years. Paul Hosford, you picked this as well. Just so Tell us roughly what this story is here. Yeah, so this is a, an Irish citizen who's been deported from Australia uh, over over concerns about their, their background and about the, I suppose, the circumstances on which they entered uh, on a, a special designation visa into Aus- Australia. Um <clears throat> they had worked uh, for for two TDs. The the two two TDs are named. One of the one of the TDs kind of said, "Look, they'd worked for me for once in a constituency office." Another said that they were there for four to six months. But like I suppose, like Kate said, that the concern on the Irish end is is who has access to uh, I suppose the corridors of power. Kate, I I don't know um, after an election what if there's a guard of vetting process there for your staff or do you just uh, my I, I, understanding I, is there isn't mm. there isn't a guard of vetting of staff. Um, really? that are employed by TDL. I'm starting okay. to be correct, but yeah. I never okay. remember so look, any if process. If, if anyone wants yeah, to correct I'm, that, I don't remember any process because okay. I've been and through And these the, people have the run of yeah, the Yeah, many of us have been through a guard of vetting process if we're yeah. working with children or in health. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's something you remember because but it's a, a process. Like you say, when, when, when I, don't, I don't know how familiar listeners will be with Leinster House, but once you're in Leinster House and you've got a badge on you know the, the the ushers and the security there are very. I suppose they're on top of who's wearing a badge and who's in. But once you have a badge, you can kind of walk around. Um, you know, and if your swipe opens a door, it's assumed you're you're meant to be there. So if this person had access to 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 I suppose corridors in Leinster House or had access to, you know, one of the TDs was was a committee chair at the time, so they would have been privy to a lot of information, particularly I suppose confidential information. And aides will tend to see whatever everything paperwork everything is going generally. Um, aides have and assistants have access to passwords there's confidentiality there in terms of confidential documents and definitely chairs of committees would have documents that were not to be released um, so there, there is huge access there but there is that interesting thing with employment law where and I found it as an employer in the real world that fact that you would employ somebody and be responsible as the TD for their employment but the wages 
were paid by somebody else. Yeah. It creates an employment conundrum. Okay, okay. But doesn't it also raise a wider issue that this person worked for the Cork Space Centre, which is very reliant on pan-European money and is very sensitive? It's a really important field, obviously. Yeah. And so I think it raises broader intelligence issues for Ireland. We have these two intelligence services in the army and the guards. We don't know how integrated they are and we don't know how sophisticated we are because we would be seen as a soft target for spies. I mean, Ireland is seen as an EU member state, non-member of NATO. So I think it's an area that we need to wise up on a lot, given all of the changes, not just in in the Oireachtas, but also more generally. The vetting for this kind of work should be better. Yeah. Is this country still a bit too informal I wonder we still kind of every Asher everyone knows everybody and Asher who well, of course they're not a spy and all that kind of thing well even I mean to take it to a, to another level one of the things that I always am struck by is that you know if you've been a member of the Oireachtas you get lifetime access to the Oireachtas you can, as a, a former TD you can apply for a card and just kind of walk around and I, I'm kind not sure to be at now <laughs> <laughs> but if you didn't yeah, if you yeah. if you were you parked in there today now but you can do that and not a whole lot okay. of parliaments okay. in the world would say yeah look you know, and, and are, okay, we okay, we mo- yeah. we're moving on. Um, and and kind of sticking in in the political arena. So um, obviously, there's a certain amount of coverage across the papers today about the um, Social Democrats and their uh, leadership. Uh, uh, I suppose it, it is at this stage a, a leadership battle. Maybe Kel, you picked um, Jody Cochran in the Sunday Independent. Uh, Sock Dems leadership change a risky move, but one worth taking. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting piece. And I thought it was a really interesting piece because it wasn't exactly what he was writing, but it was the whole concept of this very small party in Ireland, relatively new. And it just seems like every five minutes, like I'm not a political person, but on an outside looking in, every five minutes they're either changing leadership or the different numbers of leadership. And it felt like like you would do in, in kindergarten or in play school where they're constantly champing and changing, which you might kind of work, OK, fine, if it's a really big party and you have two or three leaders and each has their own department and they specify in that and they focus on that. But when it's such a small party and it's like they're all taking turns to be the leader and I kind of went, OK, if you're going to be a party and particularly a small party in Ireland and you want to make a difference and you want to make a change, you need one leader and everybody gets in behind them and you push for that and if you want to have loads of leaders when you grow up and become a big party do that but like make the changes now and particularly with Ireland now like we really need leadership we don't need chopping and changing and well you take your turn and it, then it becomes a popularity contest who's the favourite kid in the room I would be much more along the lines of look just pick one leader know what you're talking about and make those changes That's an interesting point now isn't it Bridget from a person who's not like you know a casual observer of politics it's like what the hell's going on with those people? Well, I, I suspect it's because they couldn't actually choose and, and both Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall are very strong performers. So I think it was that there wasn't a single leader emerged from when the Social Democrats were established. But I've no doubt it'll be only one person after this round. I doubt they'll have a repeat of the multiple uh, of the multiple leaders. So either Holly Kearns or Keno Callaghan or one or other most likely, I think, of, of those will, will emerge. But I think it's the, the bigger issue is just how fragmented the Irish left is. And I was looking at mm. the Red Sea poll and the Social Democrats are on 4%, Labour on 4 People Before Profit on 3 And so it's very, very fragmented space to, to, to the left. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, it, it, and I, I suppose one of the things is that, is that question of whether or not there's a ceiling there. If you add in the greens there, you've got about 15% of, of support on that left, kind of soft centre left. Is there just a, a natural ceiling there between 15 18% that you, you can attract? I think one of the things specifically... Yeah, no, the, are, are we include, we're not including Sinn Féin then as left anymore. No, I would think that, you know, the the question about Sinn Féin is about whether or not they cannibalise that. Um, a lot of people will look at, at Sinn Féin and uh, I suppose for, for a lot of people, Sinn Féin is a zero-sum proposition. You're either giving them a one and a two or you're not putting them on, putting them on your, your, uh, your, your balance sheet at all. Uh, I, I mean, just specifically about that um, kind of that soft centre left. I mean, I would consider Sinn Féin a, a left-wing party, um, I suppose, at this point. But I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that they're kind of open to to movement <laughs> okay, on it. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I would just consider them in a separate kind of vein uh, if you're yeah. looking at the at the, the, the Labour and, and, and Social Listen, Democrats. seeing as we've stumbled into the poll, um, Paul, will you just give us the rundown on all the parties, whether they're up or down, and give us the the details of, the, of how that poll was taken? Yeah, so this is the Red Sea poll in the, in the Sunday Business Post today. It was conducted online between the... Uh, 17th and 22nd of February for 998 adults who are over the age of 18. Red Sea has its own online portal that they, they use. Uh, the poll indicates that Sinn Féin is, is on 31% of support. That's down 2% from last February. Uh, Fine Gael on 21%. That's no change. Uh, Fianna Fáil up 2% or 2 points to 17%. Independent candidates up 2%, 2 points to 13%. Social Democrats, as we just mentioned, down to 2 points to 4%. The Greens, uh, Labour, no no change on four uh, percent. People for profit solidarity. No change on three. A two on two, and then undecided uh, uh, on nine percent, and other parties on one. So still, I suppose ten percent of the the electorate not tied to any of the the major parties. You know, thirteen percent following uh, independence. Still yeah. an awful lot to to kind of play for if you if you thought that an election was coming yeah. within the next okay. six to eight months. Uh, Kate O'Connell. What do you think of the Social Democrats and the, the the place they occupy and the potential for them and that? No, it's 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 an interesting space because um, first of all, I'd like to I suppose they're they're, they're not gone away, Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall, but both it's I think it's a loss to front bench spokespeople that the two of them have stepped back um, from the the front bench. They both have contributed a huge amount to Irish politics. I sat with Catherine on public accounts committee. And Roisin Shortall very much led the Slaunch Care plan. So the two of them have contributed in a very meaningful way to Irish political life. What has emerged to my mind over recent years is where you have this void in the centre. And we constantly seem to be looking at that void in the centre of Irish politics. So you have, you know, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in the, the previous dominant positions, then Sinn Féin coming up. And that centre vote, be it centre right or centre left, kind of having been sort of in, a, in no man's land. And then you have this argument that... What do you mean now with the centre being a no man's land? Do we not have, like, is, is, are Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael not there, there around the centre and Sinn Féin moving towards well, the centre? Well, I mean, if you look at the, at the polling positions of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and then you look at when there's a referendum... The broad and varied middle ground, as I would that, call okay. them. So you're talking about... So there's about a difference the, there between... A young, diverse, liberal yeah, kind of Ireland. Yeah, so so if, if they don't it, vote for the older parties, they're tending now towards Sinn Féin. Because, to my mind, there's a void there. Okay. And, and where there is a vacuum, something will go into it. And Sinn Féin tends to be, to my mind, the default option there. Where I think there is a huge opportunity here for the Social Democrats, having built 
on their three seats to six seats, I think. Is what three, they were, two, well, two, three, two, then six. Yeah. Um, I'm sure they don't want to mention the Minister <laughs> for Health in, in their conversations, but th- that there is a sort of a stagnation there and there probably is an opportunity there for someone to define themselves as a centrist party to fill that void well, for the people okay. that broad and varied middle ground to vote for so if they don't a, identify okay, so there's a new generation there you think that doesn't have a home if it's not that that may have rejected the old guard and you feel doesn't have a home when uh, they're they're gravitating towards Sinn Féin well if, if so you look at are you, if you look at why have we had Are you to thinking have you might join the oh Social God, Democrats? No, no, what I'm but saying is... But are you is, not... You're the kind of thing you're talking about what here. What sort of kind of thing am I, Brendan? The, the, <laughs> the modern, centre, liberal, progressive... Maybe but, that's where they want to go and maybe yeah. that's where Fina Gale want to and go. And it's where you're at. Maybe where... The, that's are they where, moving towards you? You don't have to move towards them, Kate. Maybe, this they're, is, maybe they're coming this is to you. Is, that, is this a come and get me <laughs> no, plea by you? Absolutely not. Absolutely. <laughs> quiet, so. Sunday morning. What I, and you, and you, and I, I mean, the, the thing is, is that Fina Gale, to my mind, Fina Gale have, to my mind, straddled that area between the conservative Costello and then you have the, the progressive Fitzgerald part of the party. And to my mind, Fina Gale need to decide are we more centre right? Are we moving towards right? And if Fine Gael don't move to that position, I feel that void will be filled by perhaps something like the Social Democrats or a combination of those slightly left of centre groupings. Do they have to change? Do Fine Gael have to decide though? I mean, if you look at them in the last general election, around 21% of support now polling at 21% of support, hold the Taoiseach's office two more budgets before a, a, a general election in theory. You could also make the argument that, look, the government parties will probably take a, a bit of a kick in, in the in the locals. You let the public get their frustrations out there and then you run a general election after the bu- next budget. You know, if, if I'm in Fine Gael, I'm looking at 21% today and look, it's not where you want to be. You want to be up around 30%. 30, 3% margin but, of error. And neither party, neither of the two main parties, when you take in the margin of error hitting over 20%, I don't think anyone in those two parties would see that as a good thing. No, Bridget, not a good thing, a, but definitely. Bridget, there's a lot of interesting um, ideas there. There is, and in a way, what's happening is Irish politics is seems very like politics everywhere else at the moment in Europe in that, firstly, fragmentation. That's a very fragmented political landscape. Volatility. Voters move and they're moving a lot. And so I would say that there's still a lot to play for in between now and, and the next election. Would you agree with Kate? Is there room for a new party who, which is that kind of like modern liberal maybe centrist progressive kind of I don't see much space in that political spectrum at all it's already very fragmented And, and I think what we're seeing is like elsewhere the two traditional parties are being squeezed both on the left and on in Ireland interestingly not on the right so the bigger the interesting thing about Ireland is we we've had the fragmentation on the left but we haven't had the arrival of radical right anti-migration party and I think that's unlikely. I don't think Irish politics wants to go there. So it may be that there's a marketplace for it but I don't think Irish politics will go there. So I think the question for the next election would be could Sinn Féin in conjunction with parties of the left for the first time in Irish history have a broadly left-leaning government? 
I don't I don't see the numbers now, but yeah. that would be the big shift rather than that centre. I think the centre is occupied. It's just not what the centre means now is very unclear. It can mean progressive on social stuff, but also conservative on the economy, etc. So in other words, it's to define what that, what you describe as the vacuum is, is very difficult in today's political marketplace. One of the things in terms of what, what Bridget was talking about there about a, a coalition is that if you look at those broad, just those base numbers, it's going to be very, very difficult. I think people underplay how difficult it's going to be for Sinn Féin yep. particularly to get to the what seats is their required. Road I mean, to, if, if yeah. the yeah. boundary changes and the, the Electoral Commission, you're probably looking at a doll that's over 170 seats. That means that a, a, a doll majority is probably 86, 87 seats. Sinn Féin is on 30, 37 seats at the moment. To, to think that they would get to within, uh, I, I suppose, within comfortable distance of, uh, you know, an 80, 86, 87 seat majority, I, I think based on those numbers is, is pretty fanciful if you if you completely discard the idea of a coalition w- without Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Yeah. yeah. So the yeah. big question then is, would Fianna Fáil enter a coalition yeah. with Sinn Féin? But I, I do think, I mean... When and we, they're the numbers. The numbers yeah. would be there. 100%. Like the, has politics evolved? Like the world has changed so radically in yeah. the last 10 years. You look at, you know, war, pandemic, and we had the recession of 2009. Has politics evolved and changed? Have the parties evolved and changed to the same extent that people have? And I go back to the Citizens' Assembly mechanism that... The idea is is that those mechanisms now we're going to be doing dealing with it with the the issue of illicit drugs. Yeah, are we constantly kicking um, contentious or difficult or unpalatable, for want of a better word, social issues into a citizens' assembly? Because there's this argument that the Iraq that's the doll is out of step with society, um, and. Are we going to constantly work with this idea that the doll just takes longer to evolve or political parties take longer to evolve than society does? At what point is it all going to balance up? Yeah. And can we get rid of this idea that you would need this sort of interconnecting mechanism to bring the politicians to, to, up have, to, to speed. have the real let's have the real conversation yeah. over there. Yeah. Be a touchstone because the idea like, is okay, the doll I, is both yeah, messenger could, of the people. And could, if it's not Can doing I go that, back to you there, Kel, and the first thing you said there was you're not really a a political person. Whereas I suppose you would think that everybody is a political person on some level. But do, can you identify a bit with what Kate is saying there? That do we have a politics that actually is connects with like regular people who aren't interested. I was just kind of sitting quietly listening to it all because I would see myself on the outside. But that doesn't mean I don't know anything about politics. And it's so interesting, the last point there. I do think there's a massive transition. Like I see my kids coming up and I see they don't have any connection. They're still a bit young, but and but even myself, I don't see any kind of single voices coming through. It just seems so broken up on the outside and there's so many more parties like 20 years ago, you had uh, Fine Gael, you had uh, Sinn Féin, you had Fianna Fáil, you had the uh, Progressive Democrats, you know, Labour, you ki- and families were with parties and it was very structured and you nearly followed this hierarchy of things. And now it's nearly like a grenade was thrown in in the last few years and all the independents at the last recession, they, they kind of took over and we thought, oh, the independents, they're going to be all the next new new thing. And that kind of came to nothing. It seemed to fizzle out. And since that point, there doesn't seem to be the connection. And I think everybody's trying to find their feet with it. So 
I I can see how things there's so many different parties and I can see how things seem a bit more disjointed but like law trying to catch up with things all these things they're a bit slower and it takes time I yeah. don't know what it's going to look like but there it just seems to be very noisy at the moment without strong voices and without strong leadership and a lot of flip-flopping Okay and, and, and you know people might argue that a strong female leader needs to emerge maybe <laughs> hi- hijack one of the existing smaller parties and bring it forward Uh just before we leave all this and before we leave the poll, uh, Kate and Paul, you both picked um, the Sunday Independent piece today. Politicians remain tight-lipped about illegal drug use because there is in in that poll, in the Business Post, there seems to be broadly uh, a majority in favour of legalisation, decriminalisation of drugs. So, Paul, um, what happened this week about politicians and drugs and yeah so, so this goes this goes back to what Simon Harris said in the, in the doll uh, it was the last week where he spoke about the connection between uh, people using uh, particularly cocaine and what happens in in the Irish gangland he was saying that there the, you know there's a connection between what what happens in pubs and clubs on on Friday night and what happens on the streets in terms of, of murder now some people kind of said that look that that direct correlation has never really been fully established, but that you know there's probably something in it. Um, but it, it obviously prompted the question. Uh, Simon Harris, uh, Hildegard Nocton, and, and Neil Richmond were out at a doorstep on on Maldorf Street Did Wednesday Desi morning. Did Ellis say as well that the cocaine is being used here, there, and he, also he said in in Dollar Aaron, yeah, yeah. And okay. look, that's not something that I've ever witnessed. But you know, if if Desi has uh, information, he should probably pass it on to to the ushers and, and to the guards there. But uh, you know, it's uh, you know, I suppose the point he was making, the broader point, is that drug use in Ireland has become very, uh, I suppose, very prolific, very um, widespread. Across the spectrum, and the point he was making was, look, it's not just you know, you know, young lads, or it's not you yeah. know that this this so is in terms widespread. of politicians. Then yeah, so Hugh uh, O'Connell asked a, a number of politicians about their own drug use, and some of them, you know, some of them answered very openly and honestly. Uh, you know, Gino Kenny has said that that he has done cannabis and, and other drugs. NASA Horgan said that she she had done a, a you know a, a couple of she had used a couple of different drugs uh, in the piece. To, uh, Herself, but I suppose the I suppose the question was, and, and it was put to Hildegard Nocton the other day. You know, if politicians are going to kind of shine the light on the use of of drugs across uh, society, should they not be a bit more upfront about their own experiences with it? Um, a lot of politicians uh, have said that they use drugs but had very bad experiences, which is, I suppose. Convenient, given the the, the, the current Well, climate. no, we won't question the, their honesty. It was a bit like, remember Larry Gogan on the Just a Minute Quiz? They didn't really suit you, did they? He used to say to people, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, so, and, but I suppose it is it is worth having those conversations because that that business poll, business post poll says that fifty percent of people are in favour of decriminalisation, and that's a that's a conversation yeah. that people have been trying to get going for for a number of years. And I, I suppose the the dreaded uh, Citizens' Assembly maybe. Uh, well, as, the as dreaded Kate Citizens' Assembly have, have actually, have, <laughs> but they have but actually they, they mo- moved uh, uh, towards a lot of change that, that we didn't think at the beginning in some of the processes would actually happen. By the way, uh, Desi Ellis took that um, from an expose in the mail years ago. He wasn't talking about anything he'd seen oh, recently. It's interesting though, I, I'm reminded by a very experienced, a veteran politician who said to me in, light, in the wake of the Citizens' Assembly on the Eighth Amendment, and he said, well, it's grand for them. They're not going out looking for votes. And, you know, it is that I think is 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 an interesting point and in that the Citizens Assembly people aren't going knocking on doors. So they're free to do what they want. Yeah. And that politicians, to some extent, are held back 
by the message on the door or the party membership. But, but interestingly, one of the features of Irish citizens' assemblies is, so you have the assembly and what comes out of that, but all of them then have gone back into the Oireachtas mm. to a parliamentary committee and almost experts again and it's all rehashed. And in a way what it helps, and it, it's very good for clear issues, it's very bad for diffuse issues, but for clear issues, okay. you get something over time and it helps. Okay, in, but in um, terms of the, the 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 politicians and the illegal drug use and the citizens' assembly, I mean there is a reason why class A drugs are class A drugs. Yeah. Um. There's a very limited medical use for cocaine, apart from in some eye drops. There's very little medical use for heroin, and I think um. Medical doctors and psychiatrists have very strong views on the difference between becoming addicted to drugs if you're from a particular socioeconomic group um, and the challenges that can bring and the economic hazards it can bring. Yeah. But also and, there's and a broader... But a lot of people equally would argue that the reason it brings those hazards and those economic problems is because drugs are illegal. A hundred percent. But do we want... If, when you're decriminalising or you're making something, which are distinctly different things, making something legal, are we happy with our politicians being off their heads making policy the same way as we want our our taxi drivers or well, our no, there's more or chance that they'll have had a few bevies in the doll bar than that any of them I'm, are probably just, on any other kind of drug. Are we, happy, are we happy with that? That is the conversation. Well, that is part of the conversation. Yeah. What are we happy with? And if people are taking mind-altering substances, well, how are we going to manage that as a society? So it's not just as simple as opening yeah. up the doors. And, and equally, we are managing a, like a, a massive mind-altering substance already that is completely legal in this country. 100%. That is, is yes. rampant. OK, listen, we'll take a break. Paul Hosford, Kel Galvin, Kate O'Connell and Bridget Laffin staying with us. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. Quality, cosy log cabins at affordable prices. Timberliving.ie Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Paul Hosford, Kel Gallivan, Kate O'Connell and Bridget Laffin still with us. I could not disagree more with Kate O'Connell, says this texter. The problem with Fine Gael it's, is that it's unclear what the party stands for. On the one hand, it's extremely socially liberal while claiming to be economically responsible. To my mind, Fine Gael have left me culturally. I voted Fine Gael all my life, never again. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael should merge, say, a, a, a few texters. Why would any sane person vote for either of them? They've been in power for over 100 years and homeless health, etc. is worse than ever, said someone else. And someone, and someone else saying, do the Social Democrats and Greens have the high number of seats they do because Sinn Féin didn't have enough candidates? Will they be wiped out in the next election by Sinn Féin? Um, OK, so we, we're we going to go to the protocol now because the Sunday Times is telling us that, that Rishi Sunak, uh, UK Prime Minister, is expected to unveil a new deal with the EU on a, uh, on a Brexit deal with Northern Ireland in the coming days. We hear it could be tonight, it could be in the morning. If you put on your headphones there, guys, John Rental, Chief Political Commentator with the UK Independent, is on the line. John, is there a deal and wh- when and how and where will it be unveiled, do you think? Hi there, Brendan. Uh, Hi. There has been a deal for some for some weeks, I think, um, virtually ready to go. Um, I don't know how many square brackets in the legal text there are, but uh, we've we've been reporting that uh, that the deal is 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 days away. 
for several weeks now. So uh, yeah, exactly. So on that basis, it may, it may be another several weeks, but uh, it certainly certainly. Is it any more imminent now than it was imminent last weekend? <laughs> yeah, no, it seems seems to be more imminent. I mean, there seems to have been quite a lot going on behind the scenes over the, over this weekend. Um, there was the slight, there was a slightly farcical element of the uh, uh, of the king being drafted in to meet uh, Ursula von der Leyen um, uh, before they realised that would be a terrible idea, uh, politicising the, uh, the, the the monarchy. Um, and uh, the DUP are still not uh, not completely signed signed off on it, but they haven't said no. Okay, so that's the next question then. A lot of people seem to be saying we haven't seen this deal, we haven't been told exactly what it is, we've been kept out of it. So we have two yeah. elements here. We have the, obviously the the ERG uh, Brexit types within the Tory party and then the, the DUP. Steve Baker, we're yeah. told on the front of the Telegraph, is on resignation watch now, um, yes. pend- pending the deal. So... Are, are, is uh, is Sunak going to be able to face down his own party on this? Do you think? Well, uh, it's the Steve Baker question is uh, is important. Uh, if 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 Steve if Steve Baker's on board with it, and if uh, if the DUP don't say no, uh, then I think the deal goes ahead. But uh, if if Steve if Steve Baker drops out, then I think uh, then I think the political calculations change because. Um, it's very important to have him and Chris Heaton Harris, the Northern Ireland Secretary. They're both um, what we call Spartans, both uh, you know, extreme Eurosceptics, very, very hard to persuade on this. Uh, and as long as they're on board, I think I think Rishi Sunak can get this through. Yeah, um, is Rishi Sunak also banking on that uh, the Tory Party doesn't have any more uh, people to elect leaders right now? <laughs> yeah, well, there is that. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson's uh, rocking around causing trouble, but uh, I, I think the idea that the party will, will, will go back to him is for the birds. So uh, he's, he's annoying, but he's not, a, uh, he's not an obstacle to, to Rishi Sunak doing a deal. OK, well, look, fingers crossed. We keep an eye on it. John Rental, Chief Political co- Commentator with the UK Independent. Thank you very much. Um, Bridget, you feel like the kind of person who's in the loop with these things. Where do you think it's at? So it's a very good it's a very good deal from the UK point of view. They've got their red lines and their green lines. They've got control over VAT and state aids in Northern Ireland. And there's a new mechanism whereby uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly, so it's an incentive to get that up and running again, would actually look at pre-EU legislation and be able to not apply it. So, so, so this is the sovereignty issue yeah, kind of dealt got, with in some kind of fudge. Yeah. They've got uh, and consent the democratic issues. So they've got an awful lot. So the calculation has to be for Jeffrey Donaldson. If Sunak goes ahead without him, then that really weakens him in, in the sense of obviously it means the, the institutions don't go back up, but it, it would long term weaken him. But the ERG, what will happen? And that's why I think Steve Baker, the on-watch Steve uh, Steve Baker is critical. If he and Heaton Harris sign up, that's two ministers in Northern Ireland signing up. They're hardcore Brexiteers, ERG, and that should deliver. Sunak can get through this through the House of Commons with Labour anyway. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what in terms of his own party, what the hit is? The concern the British must have is if they don't do it now, 
the EU is just so weary and tired of these negotiations yeah. and this deal. And it sounds like a lot of uh, Tory MPs are, are sick of it as well. This will be get Brexit done. It completely. But say they don't and there's a crisis about the NIP and they proceed with that awful bill through the House of Commons, then the EU will stop talking to them altogether and roll back the big agreement. So they have a lot of calculation to make. I think he'll go for it, Sunak. I think he has to go for it. But he would like to go for it in a way that if there's opposition in his party, it's about 20 MPs and not 40. Mm. So I think that I think there's an, it's on a knife edge still. Yeah. But Paul, our politicians here in the Republic are basically standing down a bit and staying quiet enough at the moment, are they? Are we all standing back and just trying to leave them out of the bit with this? Yeah, the last couple of months there's been a, a kind of a notable uh, aspect to the Irish reaction to where, you know, politicians are not briefing, they're not, if they're asked about it at doorsteps or press conferences, they're saying, look, the talks are ongoing, we don't want to provide what they call running commentary. They've been very, very keen to say, to not, I suppose, um, not say anything that might affect it one way or the other. Like Bridget says, it, it is on a, on a knife edge. So they were very cognizant of the fact that anything that they were saying was being picked up by uh, normally Brexit, you know, pro-Brexit media in the, in the UK and kind of being spun in, in different ways. They, you know, so here, they, but I suppose the last week or two, there has been a sense that, you know, Privately, that there has you know that there's a, a, an end in sight almost, or or that that a deal is imminent. Like like I think like John said, there, you know, we've been talking about a deal in the coming days for the last couple of weeks, but it does feel, um, you know, in the last week or so that you've actually got to a point where they genuinely believe that that there's something coming up up over the hill. But one thing that they've always kind of cautioned uh, and you know, anyone in government has kind of said about this over the last couple of years is that there's so much political calculus there um, between what the DUP wants to do, what what the state of play is with within the, the Conservative Party because the Conservative Party has so many factions yeah. around this that, you know, it's often out of the hands of the EU negotiators or, or Irish politicians. Yeah, and, we, so we, yeah, and we, we certainly, nobody's counting their chickens, I think. Like Kate, look, it's a lot more complicated than this. But on the other hand, any reasonable person looking on now would say that it would seem like political madness for the for the DUP to scupper everything again now if everybody else has such a willing to move things on. Yeah, here. and it's far more than an academic exercise because the people of Northern Ireland um, have been sort of in a relative limbo business unable to plan for the future has been very difficult for the farming community. Um, so so Brexit and the whole negotiations around the protocol is heading towards, um, I suppose, having a, 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 a sedating impact on the economy as well, that the economy can't move forward. And um, like I don't want to add anything that might <laughs> affect things in any way, but I do think, and there there is... Uh, a definite move towards getting this done, done properly, but done in the sense that it works for the people of Northern Ireland and everybody within that grouping and the relationship between the EU and the UK going forward, a practical yeah. way. That's yeah. not just yeah. punishment and, and based for the sins of the voters or whatever way you want to put it. Yeah, and I think the UK as well want to see Bridget, don't they, 
what I'd heard called a, the warm breeze would come from Europe if the UK does this deal. They, 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 they need to. Yeah. I mean, the, their economy has been badly impacted by Brexit. Investment is down. Growth is down. They're poorer. It's costing uh, It's costing people money in their pockets in terms of in the inflation effect. So they need to get to a stage where they can talk to Brussels and improve the wider relationship. Yeah. But it's all contingent on this. Yeah. This, okay. this is... This could bring this down, but I don't think it will. I think Sunak will go for it. Yeah, see, it, that seems to be the, the general impression anyway. OK, I want to come back to the real world for a minute because actually, as much as you hate to be kind of acting out these culture wars here, arguing out this oh, woke, gone mad and all this, uh, Kel... This story about Roald Dahl has quite exercised people this week. And we have an advance on it today, which is James Bond books. uh, The Telegraph is telling us were edited to remove um, racist references. You were looking at the Lorna Siggins piece in the Sunday Indo. Will Willy Wonka ask Gwelga be going woke? I love, I have to, I mean... Am I allowed to enjoy watching this play out? I don't know. But uh, I just think it's really, really interesting because there's, I think there's these kind of new sensitivity jobs coming up where their job is to look through past literature and figure out, well, look, is this going to be okay in modern society and things like that? So when I saw the Roald Dahl piece kind of coming out and like they were changing out words like poor Augustus Gloop, like he was fat in the Roald Dahl books, but now he's enormous. And actually, I have a 12 year old daughter and she's perfectly in that age. And she was reading the piece and she thought it was so much worse calling the poor child enormous as opposed to fat. And you kind of it kind of got me thinking we had a bit of a chat about it. But like, yes, like Roald Dahl wrote those pieces in a time. And just like Ina Blyton, her stuff was kind of changed out, but it was in a time as well. And I think we need to be really careful with this, because if we do whitewash things too much and history goes on when we're looking back do we forget things are they wiped out altogether or do we need to maybe just go this book was published in the 1970s and have a little context there to give people a heads up a writer saying on the news I think last night that you know children don't understand that these books are old and they just take everything as like this is this is now and this is happening now. But like we knew reading the famous five that, you know, you didn't have lashings of ginger beer and what whatever. You know, we knew it was a certain kind of a thing. Kate, what do you think? I think it's I think it's desperate, I suppose, reverse engineering of culture. Yeah, I really think maybe maybe my children they never they never read read Roald Dahl. I grew up in Roald Dahl. Um, they've never commented on any any way anyone's described in it. And you'd wonder, is this kind of, you know, the easy option, the low-hanging fruit that someone can edit online and cleanse a document when there's hard copies all around the world? And then you have modern media where you have Andrew Tate with his horrific spewing online and that allowed go on. So we're letting that happen in You're one area. You're so right. Yeah. Um, like, how are we cleansing the past? And like... Will we just do a sticker and put it on the front of books and go, this may cause you offence if you're in any way sensitive to Yeah, the and stay away words. from the stay internet, by the way. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like... <laughs> because and like, because if you're upset by Augustus Gloop, the internet's <laughs> yeah. going to blow gonna your mind completely. And who's, whose job is this to moderate society for us? And how do we know who we uh, came well, it's from? A, it is a job, as Kel said, sensitivity yeah, readers are, 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 like, are doing oh, it. Just get over it all. Like I just find this all just nauseating, to be honest, and a complete waste of time. 
and you know we have very good writers of the current generation Louise O'Neill springs, uh, springs to mind Louise O'Neill who's writing about this today yeah, yeah. and you're just oh, I didn't read that but uh, yet um, but like you know let, let today's generation make their own culture and let you know the, the people of the past my father in his 80s would have completely different views to me in my 40s to my children now so I kind of go, it's all part of people, it's all part of culture, it's all part of our history. We need to know where we're coming from to know where we're going. I saw someone else making the point that as much as we think that what we decide is offensive or not not right now, that this is the definitive version of it, that in the past there has been various times where they've, you know, changed uh, stuff. Victorian times, they changed uh, Shakespeare and all this kind of thing. But it was done with the norms of the time as well. Those norms did not prove to be, you know, timeless either. Like, so, you know, we're all just in a, in a different perspective the, on things. The misogyny out of James Bond is going to be great. <laughs> Miss Money Penny. I think what they've started, the Telegraph seems to be that they've started with the racism. So that's, <laughs> yes. that's okay. taken up their time so far. But no doubt they <laughs> will start, they will start digging deeper next. Uh, now, um, Ukraine, Bridget, uh, you've picked, there are uh, several pieces across the papers, but uh, you picked uh, Sunday Independent piece by Sean Pollock. And then tell us about the piece in the Sunday Times. This is, um, is it Kaja Kaya Kallas, who is yes. the, the PM of Estonia, who's been yes. a very, very strong very on this from, from the start. Yeah. She's now saying, we warned you what Putin was like, now you listen yeah. to us. So I think the, the in the paper, Sean Pollock's piece is ba- was interesting because he clearly has relatives in, in and family in Ukraine and it brought home the impact on someone who had a job in an IT company and the next, within two weeks, he was carrying a Kalashnikov and was a soldier and that the, the, the kind of human cost of this war, which is... Uh, all wars are senseless, okay, so but this let's, is more let's, sense. Okay, well, let's let's bell the cat here, right? And people will... The, the next thing people sometimes say is when they say, look at the human cost of this war, they will then say, in the same breath, we need to be talking about peace. Sure. And and that's why the, the Sunday Times callous piece is very interesting because... Basically, what what it's saying, and I, and and I fully agree with this, Putin wants to destroy Ukraine. He wants to destroy its cities, its culture. They burn books. They have kidnapped children and taken them to Russia to Russify them. So we should be under no illusion what Putin's intent here is. He does not want an independent, democratic, prosperous Ukraine. And in my view, the Ukrainians have every right to look west if they want to have the kind of country that they want to live in Okay. without this. So, so I think everyone would agree on all so that. I think what people are starting to disagree on is the strategy of how we end this. And, and to some people, and I suspect to you, the notion of that we, of us saying we should encourage uh, peace here or a ceasefire or an early end to this seems to be an offensive suggestion. No, so I, I, so if I thought a ceasefire could happen and if I thought a ceasefire would happen and would be maintained and would have proper confidence building measures, then I, I think that would be the best thing to happen. Okay. But I see no, no conditions under which that can happen now. But how do you see conditions under which Ukraine, which, which is what they want, can beat Russia firmly back to to 
and and re- regain all of Ukraine, including Crimea, Donbass, all of it. Do you do you see that happening? I and if we do, if we do want that to happen, why aren't why are we drip feeding them so, the means to do it? If we want them to win, are we afraid of them winning? No, I think there's obviously the the fear that Russia is a nuclear power, and yeah. that has to be in the calculation. It would be very stupid not to not to keep that. I think the next three to four to five months will be very telling, because the Ukraine will get the tanks, and it there is a spring offensive that they're planning, and they've been very effective in in these offensive before. So the question is, wh- what can they manage to do over the next? three to six months and also what what will the Russians do in the Donbass because they're pressing very hard now mm. uh, in the Donbass. If it appears that Ukraine could drive a wedge and that's clearly what people are talking about, a wedge between Crimea and Russia, that that then encircles some Russian troops and will be, will force things to some sort of uh, conclusion or it gets, it becomes a frozen conflict that is neither won nor lost for a decade or more. Yeah. So it's too early to tell, I think. Yeah. But what Putin we, doesn't w- want to stop now. But on the other hand, he doesn't appear to have the means for a decisive... He, he's lost. He's yeah. effectively lost given what he, he wanted to do. He can't back down either though, can he? No, he can't because internally the regime. But then at what stage, you know, does... And we've no means of testing Russian public opinion. Uh, but at what... When, you know, when do families start to protest about the loss of the number, the numbers of, of young Russian men that are that are being killed, etc., etc. So I would say we're... It's too early just now but I would say the next six months will tell a lot Yeah okay Um, Kel you you deal with a lot of people who I suppose the kind of people you're dealing with are kind of um, reasonably middle class people but financially stretched and everything do you think are they tiring of the price we're paying in this country for this war in terms of the migration inflation etc yeah, I think it's really interesting what's happening because like when the war started, I think we all thought, look, you know, this will be done and dusted in a relatively short space of time. So when the kind of like the doors open and, and look, and I'm delighted that we were able to take people in and give them homes. But there was a lot of families who said, right, look, this is only for a short space of time. We're going to take a family into our home and we're going to do our best because what if it was us? You know, wouldn't we like to have another country that's able to take us in? And like the the goodwill that was out there, and and I know a few families who did this, and they ha- they themselves like they have their mortgage, they have a couple of kids, they have their jobs, and they're living their life, and they opened their doors with the best of intentions of of accommodating as best possible because this was an awful thing that was happening. But we're a year on now, and their kids are got a year bigger, and quite often the kids that came over from the Ukraine are a year older, and the families are a year older, and. Ev- there doesn't seem to be an end to it yet. So what happens with them now? Do they stay living, sharing their house with another family when that family wants their independence? Yeah. And I think it's it's getting really hard now because we need an, an exit strategy, our next step. What happens now to give these people their homes back and and have something properly set up for the families that are here and maybe are here to stay and give them a chance to set up and have their own businesses and put their kids properly through the educational system and settle down? Yeah. Tricky one, isn't it? Do we have to move into a new phase with this now, Kate, where we stop thinking that this is a, this is a sticking plaster help we're giving in Ireland? Yeah. 
I think, and I agree wholeheartedly with what you said, with families, and I took family myself, I had family for seven and a half months, and it's all fine having, you know, you'll deal with anyone for six months in your house. It's more that with the family dynamic and different situations, life goes on, everyone's life goes on. Yeah. And, you know, I know from speaking to people in the pharmacy that a lot of people would take people, but they're concerned. Then what happens? No one wants to become attached to a family and then say, see you now, you're off to City West. You can't do that. I mean, I wouldn't be capable of doing that. Yeah. Um, like in our case, there was a seamless transition to another family. We just, you know, informally agreed and, and organised. But in terms of a child's life, I mean, many of these children are going to spend a good chunk of their formative years in the Irish education system. We've seen um, the benefits the Brazilian community has brought to Ireland, the Polish community has brought to Ireland over recent decades. And there is a richness there in the Ukrainian people that can only but benefit Irish society. Mm -hmm. But I think we should be, you know, I've had to sort of examine some of my own closet racism that I didn't even know I had. I remember I referred to 45 million people as they one day to somebody and I thought, what am I calling they? Who are yeah, they? These people? Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, a bit of othering. Um, but that said, um, you know, we can't cleanse it and say we're getting 75,000 able-bodied men to build houses. Build houses. No, we're not. We're getting largely... Uh, parents who need childcare who can only work 20 hours a week because of their childcare pressures who are trying to navigate a system of having X mind their kids while they go do their 20 hours a week in a in an environment that is a hotel situation that anybody knows who's gone even on holidays with kids for a week is a nightmare dealing with kids in an enclosed environment. So to me, it's about accepting the fact there's a group of people that are going to be here long term and assisting them to integrate into Irish society and the wealth that that will bring to our society and not seeing it as a constant drain and burden. Because I have to say, my experience, both in dealing with Ukrainian people as staff and as customers um, in my business, have been generally positive, definitely no more negative than dealing with your random Irish run-of-the-mill person coming in. OK, I have to take a quick break. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. OK, we're nearly uh, up to 12, but Kel Galvin, you wanted to talk about a piece in the Sunday Independent Life magazine, Ice Baby, and this is about egg freezing. Yeah, I thought this was such an interesting one. It was a decent sized article and it was going into details about women making decisions made earlier in life about uh, freezing their eggs. And the story was one girl in particular and she's like, she went in in her 20s because she wasn't really sure what how her life would pan out. And she was sitting in the room and a lot of the, the women around her were older. But she had, she had endometriosis, she had different things going on. But it really got me thinking because with women, it... Nature will dictate, facts are facts, we have a limited span on when we can produce eggs and therefore have kids and all that kind of thing. And guys don't have to really consider this because you have the option of being pretty much any age and being a parent. And I kind of thought, right, well, look, if you think back, like it was the late 70s when women could finally work, therefore we get educated and all that kind of thing. So now these are things they have to think about. Do they work and push their career? Do they have kids? And I just think it lends itself... and it should be spoken about a lot more women making decisions between family and work and how do you go about doing that? 
Yeah, and unfortunately, that would be a good conversation to pursue, but we don't have time right now, but we'll come back to it. OK, thanks very much to my panel, Paul Hosford of the Irish Examiner, Kel Galvin, financial advisor, Kate O'Connell, pharmacist and former Fine Gael TD, and Bridget Laffin of the Robert Schumann Centre for Advanced Studies in the European University Institute in Florence.